0: Hello and welcome to this conversation on borders and international crisis and more specifically how borders and the way we understand them have been affected by the crisis and developments in the latest year. In the latest years, I should say. Um, My name is Sophie Berglund and I have the privilege to moderate this discussion with three distinguished speakers. So first we have Johanna Pettersson. Researcher at Department of Government at Uppsala University and Associated Research Fellow here at UI. Uh, welcome. Thank you. And second, we have Matthew Longo, Assistant Professor uh, of Political Science at Leiden University. Welcome to you as well and welcome to Stockholm. And last but not least, joining us from the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies at UI, we have Hugo Funissen.
1: Welcome. Thank you.
0: And welcome also to all of you joining us online, Uh, you have the opportunity to ask questions to our speakers throughout the talk, and you do so using the Q&A function on zoom and the comment section on Facebook, and I will pick up the questions throughout the talk, uh, so don't wait until the last minute to post them. Uh, And with that we should get started so. For two of you, Johanna and Matthew, this is sort of a a follow-up webinar to an event we did two years ago with the two of you. Um, And in that webinar, you spoke about trends in international border politics and how it was affected by the then very new COVID pandemic. Um, And as we know, it did not turn out to be a short thing, but a rather long lasting event uh, that has continued to affect border policy and international cooperation. An interesting thing is that when we started planning for that event, uh, that was when the coronavirus was barely heard of, uh, at least here in Sweden. So we planned for an in-person event and actually kept that plan until the very last minute, um, until it started to dawn on everyone that this virus is not going away and meeting in person is probably not a great idea. Um, So that event was first postponed and then held months later in, in digital form But it's still it still turned out to be such an interesting talk in the midst of the pandemic with with border practices changing almost as we spoke. Um, So we all agreed to do this follow up conversation after the pandemic, um, or we agreed that it would be very interesting to do so. But now that we started to plan for the second talk, another event occurred in Europe, uh, which once again put borders and territorial sovereignty on the agenda, which is the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Hugo is here to provide us with more context on how that has affected borders uh, in the region. So first of all, we can all agree that you've all chosen a very interesting topic to study uh, for your careers. And to start this conversation off, I would like to ask you, Johanna, to provide us with a little bit of, of context. And that is so that we all have the same understanding going into this talk, I would like to ask you, what, what is a border? Or perhaps more specifically, how does border researchers understand borders?
2: Yes, um, so first of all, what is a border? And I think uh, m- most of us or all of us have an understanding of borders that we get from, you know looking at maps where we see the red lines between countries and also when we cross borders, we you know, go through checkpoints and all those things. Uh, but from a sort of political science perspective, I think it's important to understand borders as uh, a core element of territorial sovereignty. So borders are the thing that delineate one territorial state from another. um, And so they are important in that sense. Um, Borders have several functions for the territorial state. Uh, They regulate flows, uh, they uh, provide inclusion, deciding sort of who belongs and exclusion Uh, who who doesn't belong or where do we end where does the next state's jurisdiction start for example Um, and how researchers understand borders depends a bit on what field you're in if you're coming from international relations or political theory maybe or political geography and so on so there are lots of different approaches and i think the field of border studies is there are a lot of conceptual discussions, like how should we really define borders, what is included, what isn't, uh, what is the border? So it's an ongoing question. Um, but one thing that we can add to this idea of the border on the map or the place where we cross to another state is borders. understanding borders more as borderscapes or landscapes that they stretch out of it. They are not only there at the line, so to speak, Um, And another very useful understanding of borders, I think, is to understand them as political institutions, so they are uh, filled with political decisions, they have administration around them, um, they have um, like everything that a regular, any kind of political institution has.
0: But I think we'll also come back to how we understand borders more in the talk. Yeah, we definitely will. And Matthew, would you like to add something to to what Johanna just said, what do we need to understand borders or, or, yeah.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, what we've seen recently, and this is recently in the big sense, maybe the last 20 or 30 years, has been lots of changes to the uh, static fixed idea of a border. Like Johanna was saying, you, you can imagine the cartographic border, the thin line that's, that's marked where there's, you know, a color on one side and a color on the other. We know that image. Uh, we've seen quite a few particular trends shaping that image, or changing that image. So the one of them has been what we often call externalization. This is the idea that you know a country, especially powerful countries that have the resources to go outside of their borders are increasingly doing so. That might mean a couple of things, right? So for example, uh, if you, uh, to put this in the European context, are concerned about this enormous quantity of migrants coming in, it is uh, not just imprudent, it's, it's irrational. To wait until the migrant washes on your shore. I'm not speaking from a humanitarian perspective. There's obviously huge problems with all the, the issues surrounding even allowing migration to be uh, following dangerous channels over the Mediterranean. But just as, assuming for a second that you're thinking prudently as a state and you're unconcerned with the humanitarian question, you might ask, well, why not process them earlier? Why not process them in Africa somewhere? And in fact, make all the migration issues dealing with refugees and asylum happen elsewhere, right? So you externalize the border as a way of saying you push your border outward. So you don't deal with the problem on your soil. You do it on someone else's soil. And if you are powerful and can leverage your your military assets and your financial assets, it's increasingly easy for you to do that. Uh, Another kind of trend that comes out of this um, is the idea that you're having increasingly joint managed border areas where states are realizing that actually the issues that they face as states are fairly common, right? So this is actually a 9-11 issue, came out of terrorism. Most states actually feared terrorists equally, were happy to collaborate over their border security about terrorism. Frankly, the same is true in most cases about migration. States are equally concerned about migrants. And so often uh, that creates some kind of tension. So for example, at the US-Mexico border, uh, US and Mexico are not equally concerned about the problem of Mexican migration, but they're certainly equally concerned about the problem of Central American migration. And so uh, the question of co-location or co-bordering, co- uh, joint management of borders has become increasingly uh, a norm. Uh, and I guess the third or last trend I would pick up on uh, is the idea of digitalization, which is that increasingly borders are not just material places, although of course they, they remain material places. You know, Ask anyone that doesn't have the right visa, you know, a, a border can be really a border, can really a fixed line. Uh, But for many of us, the question of where the border starts, starts actually with, for example, visa policies and admission policies and so forth. Um, So they're changing considerably. Those are three dimensions in which that's happening. So
0: these were a few of the perhaps dominant trends in, in border politics. But can we say in any way how how has two years of pandemic Perhaps changed or or enhanced these trends when suddenly you weren't allowed to move as much, but rather you you tried to approach this, this inherently international problem by, by restricting the borders. I think there's a lot of interesting concepts here that I would like to, um, to hear you discuss. So perhaps, Matthew, if you want to continue. On, on that trend, and then we'll, we'll give it to you, Johanna. How has two years of pandemic changed these trends?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, we certainly see uh, a, a clamping down on travel, and that was obviously necessary in, in the first instance because of the virus. Uh, the concern emerging out of now two years of pandemic is, is less about the, the policies of containment, um, but more about the justification which is to say that we had a real justification for certain kinds of travel restrictions that emerged from a public health crisis. And the concern is that that justification ends up being carried forth even after the crisis itself has gone away. And so some of the restrictions exist, and in particular, some of the uh, uh, the kinds of institutions we build up during the pandemic end up not becoming temporary structures, Become permanent structures. So, for example, this might be something such as health passports, right, or COVID tests as requirements to move or travel. Uh, that, in a way, sounds banal, it sounds harmless, but that's a question of whether it's harmless. If it is harmless, if it only is interested in helping people prevent illness from spreading, but it becomes concerning if it becomes the justification by which other kinds of selection criteria are administered. Whether people from different countries are routinely denied entry based on some kind of perhaps even fictitious health concern, because we've now allowed the justification for health passes uh, to become so dominant and so normalized. Right? So what we've seen is a kind of of, of clamping down and this incredibly sophisticated digital technology um, that allows that clamping down. And I think the, the obvious case. It's just the idea that we all travel now with, with uh, COVID passports or with uh, on our apps, we have COVID uh, basically permissions um, to enter states, almost like medical visas. Um, the concern is whether or not, if uh, we have the tools as states in the West to start to dismantle those edifices that we've built. Uh, and I think that's going to end up uh, dogging us or being concerns we should be aware of uh, going forward.
0: Johanna, would you like to add to this?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with, a lot of what Matthew says. And I think you even said in our, the last time we had a talk, you you raised this issue about medical visas and you said, this might be something that we will see long-term. And at least until now, you've been right in this. I think um, to sort of sum up what these trends are, um, I wrote uh, wrote a paper for UE before the pandemic that was titled Harder and Wider Borders uh, something like that. And I think those trends that we saw before, more walls, more of externalization, more digitalization, meaning that borders are becoming like harder or more less permeable or more difficult to cross for some people. Uh, and also the sort of net that we cast to, to guard borders uh, or monitor borders is becoming wider. And I think both those trends uh, have been Sort of strengthened throughout the pandemic and uh, sort of reinforced by it so i think uh, it might not be completely new trends all of it although like the medical visa is kind of a new old new thing uh, but uh, they are sort of reinforcing along those lines uh, which i think is sort of important to see that a, a lot of the border industry for example like the technology and development of different types of Um, infrastructure and tools and digital tools to monitor borders were already in development, but countries have spent a lot of resources uh, monitoring borders during the pandemic, and I think those kind of uh, incentives are still there to to keep uh, those kind of resources uh, in the border
0: institutions yeah a lot of interesting themes and and as you said when i when i re-watched the webinar <laughs> as a preparation for this talk it was striking how many of your both of your predictions have actually come true such as the um the health visas um but so i i think we have a lot of topics to pick up on and i would like to encourage you who are watching this um to to bring me your questions that i can bring to this very uh, informed the panel I should say perhaps for new predictions or, or whatnot so so keep sending me those questions but uh, I think we're going to leave the pandemic for a while and turn to another crisis which has definitely put borders on top of the um, agenda again um, and which is the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, so borders at the core of Of the way we understand sovereign states as it as you said Johan it defines the area over which the state has control and and what we witnessed was a breach of this sovereignty um, in February this year when when the invasion happened so Hugo how have borders and border regions close to Russia and Ukraine been affected by the 2022 invasion?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, many borders and border regions have been affected by the invasion. But first of all, I would just like to add that as a Russia analyst, I would really love to, if I could also make predictions, correct predictions sure. about, about <laughs> Russia's behavior, that, that would help my work. Uh, but but first of all, to answer the question, uh, Russia, the, the ongoing Russia crisis and Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has of course scared many other post-Soviet uh, countries or other countries nearby, near Russia, who, who either share borders with Russia or who, or who, who lie Russia's vicinity, uh, such as, you know, Georgia, Moldova, Armenia, Kazakhstan, uh, the Baltic states, Poland, Finland, even Sweden, of course, Uh, and all of these have some sort of fear linked to Russia's threat against their borders. I mean, if we take Georgia and Moldova, for example, they have, uh, like Ukraine, uh, separatist republics uh, that Russia has instrumentalized and weaponized to to weaken and destabilize these countries. Uh, Armenia has Russian peacekeepers right now on its territory, guarding its borders. Uh, Of course, Poland remembers being invaded by Russia. uh, And the Baltic states managed to free themselves from Russia's grip only 30 years ago. Uh, Northern Kazakhstan has a kind of large Russian minority and there have, throughout the years, been calls from Russian nationalists to reintegrate this part of Kazakhstan with, with Mother Russia. Uh, so Russia's imperialistic goals you know, of recreating a new Russian empire, of building a new European security order with, where Russia has spheres of influence, uh, where you know basically Russia gets to rule half of Europe, uh, means that Ukraine is not the end. But, but rather only the, the beginning of Russian conquest. And if Russia would be successful in Ukraine, other countries such as the ones I just mentioned are next in line. Uh, and they know this and fear this. So of course, now they've been become even more anxious about the security of their borders, about the Russian threat to their borders. Uh, and then my second point here is, uh, is how the invasion has infected uh, affected migrant flows. Uh, So, uh, due to the war, Ukraine has about eight million uh, internally displaced persons, so uh, refugees within Ukraine, uh, and about 6.5 million refugees outside of Ukraine uh, who have fled to neighboring countries. And uh, Poland, I think, has received about 3.5 million of these, so a very large majority. Uh, But you also have hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians uh, who have fled to Romania, Russia, Hungary. Moldova and, and Slovakia. Uh, and although Ukraine and Belarus share a long border, uh, relatively speaking, not many Ukrainians, I think about 27 or 28,000 or something like that, uh, have fled have, have to, to Belarus, which, of course, you know, it isn't that strange that uh, there aren't that many Ukrainians fleeing to Belarus, considering that Russia has basically used uh, Belarus as a staging ground to launch the invasion. Uh, so, so that border is, you know, of course, dangerous to Ukrainians. Uh, and interesting though, about 1.8 million Ukrainians have returned to Ukraine. And uh, I, I saw some news about Ukraine's border authorities mentioning that the current rates of uh, returning Ukrainians are about 30,000 a day. Uh, and another interesting point here that many international observers have made uh, is of course the the comparison of how Poland has greeted uh, these Ukrainian uh, refugees compared to the the Middle Eastern refugees Mm. that came to, uh, that still come to Poland through Belarus uh, and and how Poland has greeted these Ukrainians very warmly. Uh, given them everything they need basically uh, whereas the, the Middle Eastern migrants that have been used by Belarus as some sort of hybrid tool to weaken and destabilize the EU uh, these are either illegally pushed back into Belarus or they're put in detention centers in, in Poland so that's you know a very big difference how, how they uh, experience the border there uh, and a third point here is you know of course, as a result of the war and connected to the first point, uh, a lot of countries are now strengthening their border security. And, and one example here is the Baltic states uh, that I mentioned. And of course, they fear uh, Russia's aggression and ambitions. Uh, and and these countries' borders are now they're being strengthened both by the Baltic states themselves, but also uh, by their NATO allies. Uh, but here, the Baltic states are calling for you know even more. Uh, And basically, they want NATO to change its uh, strategy here to how how would NATO defend the Baltic states in the case of a potential Russian uh, military invasion. And, you know, the the current strategy is some sort of tripwire posture where you have small NATO units rotating through the Baltic states. But basically, these would not be enough. Uh, at first hand to repel uh, russia and uh, russian invasion and they would have to you know wait for a larger nato force and of course uh, the baltic the baltic states want to to change the strategy to some sort of more forward defense posture where you actually have enough of nato troops from the beginning to repel an invasion from from russia so there have been you know a lot of uh, lot of consequences for many border regions and borders uh, in other countries uh, as a consequence of this invasion.
0: Thank you, Hugo and Johanna and Matthew. I will soon let you react to this and and have your views on what you've heard when you followed the news of the invasion in in terms of of borders. Um, But while we're on the topic of NATO, this talk is taking place just about a week after Sweden and Finland submitted their applications uh, to join NATO as a response to this new geopolitical landscape and Finland shares a 1300 kilometer border with Russia. How has that been affected by the NATO application?
1: I mean, this is perhaps the biggest border change as a result of uh, the invasion. Uh, and as you said, it would mean that the, the border, shared border between NATO countries and Russia would increase by a lot. Uh, and you know one consequence of this uh, the invasion of all of this is that all connections between finland and russia has been cut uh, but another consequence is that in in response to this nato application by finland russia has stated that it will take what it calls you know political and military technological measures uh, to restore the balance of power here to to answer to this uh, perceived threat uh, on its western flank and, and these measures that Russia says they will take probably mean strengthening its military capa- capabilities and presence uh, on its western borders with NATO, uh, including then, of course, along the border with Finland. And for example, last week, uh, Russian Defense Minister Shai Gu said that Russia will establish 12 new military bases uh, on its western flank close to its border borders with Finland. Uh, but we can also expect Russia to strengthen its capabilities, for example, in Kaliningrad, which is only about 300 kilometers from uh, the Swedish island of, of Gotland, which, of course, is uh, very strategically located.
0: Thank you. And now, Johanna and Matthew, I want your reactions. Who would like to start?
2: Sorry. Johanna. Yeah, uh, I have uh, two points. Uh, uh, thank you for this very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, one thing that I want to pick up on that you said is uh, just at the beginning of your sort of description of this situation, how uh, Russia has these sort of imperial ambitions or they have this idea of empire. And I think that's a very good contrast with this, um, how I described, you know, how we understand borders, because the uh, the empire has very different uh, borders than the nation state or the state uh, as we know it in sort of the post World War II era. Uh, um, And an empire doesn't have a clearly defined external border, it has a very strong center, and then it constantly expands. And that is sort of another way of organizing territorial power that we've seen sort of historically. Um, And I think it's, uh, I think it might help us understand how Russia acts, if we think about it as having a completely different idea of uh, what um, political territorial organization should look like. And they don't have this idea that, you know, here's a border and that's where, you know, we accept each other's sovereignty on, on each side of the border. So that's one thing that I, I think it uh, might sort of help sort of frame what, what's really going on here. Uh, and then the second thing I want to pick up on is something that you said just at the, be- uh, at the end here with uh, the, the border with Finland uh, and how this will if Finland joins NATO, or when Finland joins NATO, it will create uh, um, uh, a new long NATO-Russia border. And um, I don't know so much about the Finland-Russia border, but I've done research on uh, the Norway-Russia border, uh, which was also a NATO-Russia border. And one thing to keep in mind there, I think, is that We all often think about this from this sort of state or bilateral perspective or we have the NATO countries on one side and then we have Russia here and then there's the border between them. But at this border or near this border, there are a lot of communities and people who live and people who have uh, daily interactions and cross the border, maybe work on one side of the border and live on the other side. Um, And one thing that happens, like you said, you know, the ties have been cut between Finland and Russia now and... Um, those kind of things can really disrupt uh, everyday life of a lot of people. So, I think that's also something to, to sort of keep in mind, even if it's not a war zone, that changed bilateral relations can also really affect um, the lives of people who live near borders, which we've seen like in many places across the world, like when you build walls and things like that, that is very disruptive, usually to local communities. Um, yeah, so that
0: was my point. Thank you. Matthew.
3: Yeah, I'm going to actually echo quite a bit of what Johanna just said, maybe in a slightly different um, way of, of couching it. I think when I watched the news about what Russia was doing in Ukraine and thought about what this meant, my first reaction was that, you know, there's all this outrage, perfectly reasonably, about what Russia was doing. Huge outrage about, you know, military invasion and uh, the cost in lives and then in, and in, uh, changing people's livelihoods and forcing migration and internal displacement and so forth. But the outrage about it had everything to do with the sanctity of sovereignty. This, mm-hmm. this sovereign nation was invading their sovereign nation. And my reaction to that is, I think that's a complete misreading of the last 30 years. The last 30 years, we in the West have constantly abrogated the sovereign rights of other states for our interests. Part of what externalization is, mm-hmm. is precisely, essentially, invasion by another name. Mm-hmm. Right? Why is it that Africa mops up our, I say our in Europe, uh, I'm speaking in, from the vantage of Europe, even though I'm, I'm American. But why is it that, that that Africa is mapping up our refugee duties, dealing with this problem we don't want? It's because of our power, our ability to, to essentially take localized power and confer it over a border. It's precisely what happens in the American context in, in, in Central America. Why, why, is, why is there now a border um, that's militarized entirely by American funding, not entirely, largely by American funding, with officers trained by American border guards in, in the Guatemalan-Mexican border. And that's nothing to do with preventing Guatemalans or other Central Americans from getting into Mexico, but preventing them from getting into Mexico and then into the United States. So this idea that these powerful states have never really cared about the sovereignty of, of lesser states or states they consider lesser, uh, not calling, you know, in this case, Guatemala lesser in any way, but that they're, that they're viewed in the American uh, perspective, as a state to be trampled upon, this is something that for 30 years we've done. We've completely broken all those norms. The fact that now Russia does it, you know we should be aghast morally at the, at the human cost. but the, the rhetoric that we're shocked that this sovereign state would invade another sovereign state just reads as very empty. If anything, I think we should see this as the beginning of the next you know 30 or 40 years of this. right? I think it's quite normal to expect that powerful states, will continue to do what powerful states have always done, which is to essentially trample upon the rights of less powerful states. And in some sense, it'll look like what the US and Europe are doing. And in some sense, it'll look like what Russia's doing. And I think the mistake is to make them seem as though they're more different than they are, um, aside from the human cost, which is quite different. right? But vis-a-vis sovereignty, they're not that different. And understand that maybe this is precisely what the next 30 years will look like, much more of this. And therefore, we have to be ever more Vigilant, not just about shaming Russia legitimately for the horrible things they do, uh, but also shaming ourselves for some of the, of the, um, you know, fairly nefarious decisions we are more okay with and are less outraged about, let's say. Uh, But the second reaction I had, um, and I think this also follows on what, what Johanna was saying, is that, so part of this is that, is that we're looking at something that feels more imperial and empires, of course, had frontiers that were more zonal and thinking of Ukraine as a frontier uh, is probably the way Russia views Ukraine. In fact, interestingly, Ukraine as a word means frontier land. Right? That's the Kraina, this is the border area. All of the old Soviet states are perceived in some sense in that frontierish way. But what I wanted to add to that is that it's actually even really true of states. You know, It's not like we just had empires and then we had states suddenly, and every state looked perfectly like a bounded nation state on a map. You know, actually, for most of the, the four or 500 years of state creation, up until the 20th century even, but certainly up through the 19th century, states were all trying to push their barriers outward. You know, in Europe, it's only really with Napoleon that a border became fixed at all in any reasonable sense. Right? So if anything, in the long view, it's not just that we're returning to empire, it's that the time in which, which borders looked like these sacrosanct lines is really small in historical terms. And actually, there's no reason to think that's natural or would per- persist in any way. So the concern is that, that there's enough evidence, historically, to suggest that what Russia is doing is ultimately a new norm, not some kind of very bloody exception.
0: Thank you, Matthew, for that. Do we have any initial reaction, Hugo? When you, as a Russia and Eastern Europe analyst, listen to this, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I had one thought uh, uh, as a response to to what Johanna said, which I think kind of is related to both your points, both, you know, the first point about uh, where does the Russian Empire end, really, and and, and your second point about how borders uh, disrupt communities. I think for Russia, where these two points intersect is you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union, mm. where you have uh, 25 million Russians, ethnic Russians who suddenly find themselves outside of, of Russia. So, I mean, talk about breaking up ethnic communities. Mm. Uh, and also, uh, this, of course, is one of the many false justifications that Putin uses to to you know to explain why the war in Ukraine is necessary, uh, that he has to protect these ethnic Russians in Ukraine uh, from this uh, alleged genocide that he made up. Mm. Uh, so that's one response to that. Uh, and then uh, I was thinking about uh, what you said with with the border externalization. uh, Now, I'm not a border researcher, so I'm not sure I'm using this term correctly now or understanding it correctly. Uh, But I was thinking about what Russia does uh, in these separatist breakaway republics, uh, for example, in Ukraine and Georgia, uh, where Russia has, you know, started for or has for a long time uh, integrated these regions into Russia uh, through different measures. You have, for example, what they call uh, passportization, passportization uh, where they hand out russian passports to these citizens and then they uh, establish russian media uh, they establish uh, the the ruble the you know the russian currency uh, and so on uh, where you know they kind of muddle up the the border of what should be the international border between for example georgia and russia but but is now becoming more and more uh, some sort of internal russian border between different uh, different provinces of of russia
0: thank you hugo and, and luckily we have two border <laughs> researchers sitting right here uh, would you say that this is an accurate uh, interpretation of border externalization or can we yeah I, yeah I think it's i think it's a very good addition to what matthew mm. said about uh, for example,
2: the EU and the US using border externalization as a way to sort of uh, move uh, border control somewhere else. This is something else. This is uh, externalization in terms of sort of uh, moving um, other aspects of political life uh, uh, outside of the border. But I think both of them are definitely part of uh, what it is that you're you're doing. Uh, I think in relation to this, if I can just add, I think one thing that this um, uh, Ukraine or the invasion of Ukraine in this crisis has sort of raised uh, is the question of cartography and that maps are becoming uh, sort of really interesting. Uh, I mean, I th- they're always interesting, but I think the, the how things are represented, for example, this uh, Aspect of uh, Russian sort of externalizing politics, they, that you say, like, they model up the, the, the line, <laughs> sort of, where is the border? And I think uh, that is something that is very uh, difficult to represent visually uh, on a sort of two-dimensional uh, map. And we've also seen this in how uh, media communicates the Russian invasion of Ukraine, like, do they do it? Is it like big arrows showing uh, strength of different troops or is it with you know uh, I saw some uh, some maps in the beginning of the invasion showed like huge chunks of Ukraine being colored red like they were already part not of Ukraine anymore and like that the line had already been redrawn or the border had already been redefined and that that really simplifies what's actually going on on the ground. And I think that is also something to really keep in mind when we're trying to understand this, that uh, border uh, borders are very like we, like maybe all our points that we've said, like it's not as easy as, you know, like we see it on the map. And I think when representing this kind of changing uh,
0: situation, it's really important to keep that in mind. Thank you. And while we're on the topic of Cartography, hard word apparently. (laughs) Cartography. I thought it would be interesting to talk about globalization for a bit and the the idea that was of um, in the nineteen nineties of of this borderless world or almost. And Johanna, in your UI paper that you mentioned that was published in early twenty twenty, you you wrote about the trend in border practices being higher fences and wider nets and it doesn't seem like COVID has eased border tension. So will we ever see the return of this globalization idea of a borderless world? Ooh, maybe Matthew
3: should please start. Yeah, I would just caution because I think it's a great question. <laughs> but I think that there's the the my actual reaction to it is I would caution the sort of implicit normative assumption that this is a good thing that we had in the 90s, you know, part of the 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 problem with the 90s is we went towards this uh, borderless euphoria, which we, I think even at the time had a pretty clear understanding, would have enormous negative economic consequences, right? The idea of like globalization and its discontents uh, already bore into it the problem of uh, ever widening inequality and so forth. I don't think we fully understood what that meant politically. And I think that we're beginning to understand some of the harms that has, that, are, that accompanied borderlessness. Um, uh, so anyway, so my my, start is to, is my first instinct is to say, I think that the concern might be that we return to a kind of borderlessness, meaning there's something about the border that we increasingly think is replaceable. And what it's replaced by looks more like, whether it's imperial or just post-sovereign extension or externalization or so forth, uh, is precisely the point of concern. And so I would, I, would, I, would, I would just slightly re-ask the question, which is to say, given what we know now about borderlessness, do we have new ways of framing what the concern is? And the concern is what would replace the border, where actually you'd have a certain kind of preferential bordering, where certain states that are powerful in certain passports end up becoming able to have borders be meaningless, right? Whereas they remain incredibly meaningful for the 80% or 90% of the world um, that that are less powerful or wealthy or so forth, right? So the concern is actually less about borders or non-borders, but the variability of borders that in the future will end up having essentially sliding scale bordering um, predicated on passport strength um, and honestly personal finance, or frankly, to come back to the point earlier, health. All the different ways, all the different metrics you can have to create a, a, a normative categorization where someone is richer or poor or healthier or less healthy ends up allowing for a sliding scale of bordering. I think that would be the big uh, concern, which is to say, in a way, yes, that is a kind of borderlessness. Uh, it's just a kind of borderlessness that I don't think anyone of us would have uh, signed up for. Johanna do you agree?
2: Uh, I I definitely agree. uh, Maybe I can sort of rephrase it a bit as well uh, uh, in terms of when we think about the borderlessness of uh, globalization uh, we often think about the borderlessness for uh, global capital and like that kind of movement so movement of goods uh, capital of uh, you know uh, digital technology has really made in some sense completely borderless communication across the world Uh, but when we talk about uh, borderless borders for movement we we have the situation that Matthew is talking about that it's becoming increasingly differentiated between different uh, categories of people depending on what country you're from or depending on your wealth Uh, so it's it's basically um, I think we talked about this the last time we talked as well that both Matthew and I sort of agreed that it's really hard to to see how uh, a world that is so unequal as ours in terms of power and economic resources and so on would become uh, without borders. State borders is one way of organizing with borders, but uh, there are other ways as well. For example, like differentiation in terms of what kind of passport you're having. Um, um, Nation-state borders often sort of Uh, delineate poorer countries from richer countries, and it's often the case that it's richer countries who are closing their borders towards uh, poorer countries. Um, uh, And we can sort of see that being redefined in other ways, if we have open borders in terms of movement, we see the creation of gated communities and those kind of more localized bordered uh, places, so um, I think um, um, yeah I kind of agree with with your conclusion there that it's maybe looking a bit bleak in terms of uh, border uh, lessness, uh, for uh, the majority of the global population but for some yeah I mean if you have uh, if you have a good passport then you can travel basically anywhere uh, but that's I mean um, yeah not very it's not very sort of good in in the sense of, if you're thinking about the
0: global scale. Mm. Mm. Thank you, um, Johanna. And um, I think we're going to pick up some questions from the audience now. Um, So if you haven't posted your question already, please do so. Um, And we have a very long question. So my apologies for just reading it through um, quickly here. Okay, I think this is posted to um, uh, to Hugo, actually, and it says In 1990 there was no Russian dream of an empire, wasn't it? <laughs> I was hoping you were gonna <laughs> get the gist of that, but otherwise, I think uh, um, we should. Uh, I really want to look into the future a bit more <laughs> if that if that is okay with you. Um, cause Obviously now we will say that borders are now harder and, and wider, and will this continue be the trend? What do you think? Should I, uh, yeah.
3: Which order should we take it? Oh, um, Matthew, perhaps? <laughs> sure. Uh, harder and wider are, are <laughs> such different um, phenomena. So I think there's no question that we are going to become more selective. And I think that my concern, this is the this idea about justification. My concern is that we, we couch the ways in which we are, we are hard, by w- which in this sense, I mean, we create hard or challenging or hard to pass obstacles, um, in particular in selection criteria for people trying to, to cross borders, to travel, to work, to live as refugees, so forth. Uh, my concern is that, whereas we've had a fairly healthy debate about what is problematic about border walls. My concern is that what COVID has done is it's giving us a kind of language to justify in completely normal, uh, uh, easy to defend moral language, closing borders, restrictive, harder border regimes. And I think that what happens when the language shifts and the justification shifts is you end up creating lots and lots of downstream effects where, In the beginning, things that would have seemed completely impossible to justify politically or completely unattractive morally end up becoming so normal that then further things become justifiable politically and so forth. It really changes the needle. And I think that COVID is a big enough event that's been so moralized, right? It's really become a question where the the sanctity of public health is 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 a concern everyone shares and is part of our national discourse and so forth. Uh, that we'll start to see hardening without any question, right? So, so the, in terms of the hardening question, I think that's real. Whether it looks like hard borders like a wall or something more digital, you know, the truth is, is that there's been a long uh, course of history now where we've been moving more towards digital hardening. In fact, the kind of walls the U.S. builds in Mexico are as much political ploys or rhetorical ploys. There really are, uh, you know, almost medieval uh, uh, technology to respond to very, you know, postmodern crises, whereas the, the kinds of walls we create digitally are much more likely to be agile and adaptable to these new crises. So uh, most likely we'll create new kinds of global divisions, new versions of haves and haves nots that will graft onto rich and poor, black and white, uh, Christian, non-Christian, all the different ways the world's already divided, uh, but it'll be a slightly different circle. Right? So the, the circle about the degree to which you have a digitally powerful passport or digitally powerful uh, permission on your phone like we have with our, our COVID apps and so forth, uh, ends up creating a new circle of exclusion that will unfortunately and problematically look a lot like the old circles of exclusion, though they're gonna overlay a lot with questions of poverty and ethnicity and so forth. But the concern is it actually adds new people into the excluded mass. And it creates new kinds of exclusions that make that worse. So all that's to say that the hardening um, uh, is probably going to be true in both dimensions, but certainly in the, in the digital sphere. And uh, whether or not that correlates also to widening, you know, most likely it will, right? Most likely it's going to mean also all the ways we already externalize borders uh, becoming even more teched out and apt out, um, so to speak, uh, is most likely the pattern. So I think that's a, that's a fair statement that it, Johanna's concerns that she raised are probably going to be extendable.
2: Mm.
0: Johanna, would you like to add something Uh, to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with much of Matthew saying. I I thought I could uh, direct uh, uh, the focus to the European Union. Mm -hmm. as that's uh, what I'm uh, focusing on right now. And uh, uh, one way that I argued in this uh, earlier paper about the widening has to do with, uh, not the external border controls, but internal border controls and the European Union does that in two ways. One of them is very closely connected connected to, or both of them actually very closely connected to what Matthew is saying about um, digitalization uh, and the ability to control who is, uh, uh, lo- who is moving in your territory without them crossing the border or when they're crossing the border. And uh, uh, One of these trends to widening is that you're actually in the EU, in the Schengen area, uh, there is border controls being exercised, uh, like regardless of the border in in different ways. So uh, the police can do it when they have suspicion of uh, someone being uh, part of a crime, for example, Uh, but it it is also used uh, sometimes uh, just to to locate people who are Irregular migrants or who who are uh, not um, sort of who are suspected of not being uh, uh, registered in the right ways, Uh, but also these internal border controls between Schengen member states that we've seen a lot during COVID I think that's, um, and I think that that type of internal border control. I uh, think I think goes back to what I said initially about about different types of functions that the border has. So it can it can be to exclude, which we've talked about a lot now, and and to include, which has been uh, you know the EU external border has been a lot about also creating this opportunity for open borders inside the European Union. Uh, but the third function has been uh, regulating flows, and I think one thing that the pandemic has caused, uh, but that is sort of Uh, Builds on what previous uh, border developments uh, were doing is the shift of focus from the focus of regulating flows or uh, opening up to new sort of markets or uh, enabling movement uh, to shifting the focus of borders to more security um, focused uh, ideas. And so there's uh, sort of um, reconfiguration and, like Matthew said, new legitimization of internal border controls as well within the european union with the with the covid pandemic that really expanded a lot from something that had been used quite sparsely uh it expanded first in the during the refugee crisis and then during covid uh, to a much greater extent than before many countries who had never used internal border controls before did so during the pandemic and i think uh we should that's something that we could keep an eye on to see if these internal border controls within Schengen, if they continue to be used for new mm. uh, new types of situations, so that, that the idea of when is it legitimate to, to break the norms of uh, how we control the border and expand that to new sort of situations uh, is something to keep an eye on. Um, I think another thing that we haven't talked about at all, but I try to sort of raise it every time, is the connection between bordering and Uh, environmental issues or climate change Uh, one thing especially for example with border walls is how they disrupt ecosystems as well and uh, another thing connected to climate change is of course uh, that more and more areas of the world will become uninhabitable uh, and people will be required to move and that will raise many new questions uh, not just about migration but what territory or connected to the state is, and some states will cease to exist completely, for example. Uh, so those kind of things will, I think, also come,
0: come into play a lot in border studies uh, in the future. Yeah. Thank you, Johanna. And before we enter our, our last round of final remarks, I would love to give you uh, the opportunity to ask each other questions. If there's something that some of you have said that you wanted to ask a question about, I think this would be a great uh, opportunity to do so. Because uh, I often find that in, in panelists, there the is always a great discussion afterwards. But I thought we could try to bring bring that after talk into the discussion now. So if either of you have a question for each other, feel I was free. thinking if who uh, could say something about his uh,
2: uh, you know thoughts about the future, like where where what you are studying now is leading. It's not maybe just on others,
1: but. yeah I, I was thinking about actually when listening to to you two now uh, 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 reflecting about about future developments and I was thinking about from, from my perspective you know Russia and Eastern Europe uh, and uh, as you talked about the uh, perhaps the, the, the futility in hoping for a borderless world uh, or, or you know the naivety perhaps uh, if you if you like uh, and I was thinking about you know Russia and its increasing isolation now. Uh, where you have, I mean, of course, very physically the borders have been, uh, you know, strengthened and, and Russia is isolated physically. You can't fly into Russia right now from from Europe, but also uh, digitally con- connected to what you talked about. How how Russia's not not only physically but also uh, digitally, virtually uh, isolated more and more. Uh, and how Russia itself is kind of strengthening this trend uh, by uh, increasing its autonomy, uh, going more and more into this uh, autarky, which which it calls it, uh, where 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 Russia is self sufficient both you know materially but also uh, digitally, uh, and and how all this connects to. Uh, the increasing willingness of the West to use economic statecraft, to use sanctions, to to isolate uh, countries. And, and you know, we, we thought previously perhaps, or many people thought previously that the West would not be willing to isolate such a large country as Russia. And, and now we're there, basically. Uh, so that was one thing I was thinking about, you know, the... In regards to what you said uh, for the future, that when it comes to looking at Russia, it doesn't seem like we're moving in the in the direction of a warless world, really.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Any any other questions? Yeah, you- I was going to ask a
3: question for Hugo. You know, you met, you asked about whether or not those different kinds of policies that that Russia has in the stands count as externalization, and I thought it and it. it it triggered to me, and I think there's an interesting distinction uh, to be drawn, which is that in a certain sense, of course, everything is externalization that's external of your borders. There's something true about all kinds of borderings, but we do mean something quite different. And I think that what you're picking up on is interesting because by externalization, we usually mean taking processes or political institutions or political uh, even facts uh, that usually take place within a nation state and having them take place external, right? We're taking the internal, and making it external. So normally you'd have a certain kind of visa processing regime take place internally and you're externalizing by putting it in a different country. What you're describing about passportization and the different kinds of policies in, in the immediate exterior to Russia is more actually of, in a sense, the opposite, right? It's internalization. It's taking the external and bringing it and making it internal. And I think that's really interesting because that, that distinction is what clarifies the difference in the old idea of empire, which is exactly what Russia's doing, just expansion. Frankly, it's, it's internalization meaning expansion. It's internalizing what's exterior uh, versus this kind of new kind of empire that's still imperial in every real way, but it's imperial by a kind of divestment of responsibility. Um, so not bringing in others, but actually casting them away. And so it's a kind of a clean... A distinction point. I think that's a, a helpful way of drawing that out so that came out of you know what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's very interesting.
0: Thank you. And you were also nodding. Yeah, yeah. And
2: I, I think that was a good point in sort of clarifying what what is the difference between these two. Uh, it's sort of uh, remaining like having the core state border intact and uh, sort of shifting uh, certain functions away or sort of trying to take small bites or like move
0: move the border. Um, yeah um, for sure I agree thank you would you like to add something or no it was just a, <laughs> a large breath um, I think we're running out of time actually so let's do one last round if it's just one more thought about this or a thought that has come up that you would like to share with the audience uh, and then we're gonna wrap up and I would like to start with you Hugo
1: all right. Uh, one last thought. Well, I have
0: <laughs>
1: many many interesting thoughts that have come up now listening to you. Uh, but perhaps for me, it's been you know to, to placing uh, placing what Russia is doing with with borders in, uh, in the vicinity and and its neighborhood in the post Soviet region, placing that more into uh, the theoretical. Background. I mean, the stuff that you guys uh, are doing more, uh, whereas what I'm doing is more very, you know, pragmatically, more geopolitically, perhaps. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if I can express this very clearly in a <laughs> in a good thought, but it's uh, yeah, it gives me insight into how to to understand uh, what's happening in, in in Russia and in the post-Soviet space. Well thank so thanks for that.
0: <laughs> and thank you, Hugo. And Matthew?
3: Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll take a cue from what Hugo just said, which is that I've also sort of been reaching or looking out, outside of my own discipline recently, and in particular towards, towards history, because I've, of course, been interested in the history of the borders and, and empires and so forth, as we've talked about. Um, that's a kind of natural aspect of, of, of anybody's study of present borders in a way you have to. You have to know where they come from and what, you know, why they emerged and so forth. But the question of the pandemic and the question of the relationship of the border uh, with pandemic is very new to me because until the pandemic arose, it never really occurred to me to look in any careful way. Um, and so I've just been recently looking at the history of the American West, which is a very different subject than we've talked about here. So I realize it's a little bit out of, out of left field, so to speak. But one of the fascinating things that comes out of reading history And in particular, there's a quite beautiful book by an author named Rachel St. John called Line in the Sand about the making of the American West, is that uh, one thing I didn't know uh, was that it was the original justification for the first stretch of fence in the American West was to not prevent the movement of people but prevent the movement of cattle. Okay, makes sense. Economically, you don't want your cattle roaming in a different country and so forth. But that wasn't the reason. The reason was because of what was called Texas fever, which is that actually the cattle were ill and there was a tick that bought essentially a virus or an illness into the United States. And so the justification for walling, the first kind of walls we ever built in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands was to prevent the spread of a virus. Uh, Really interesting stuff. I've sort of kind of done... Uh, other looks into this, and to give, to give another American example, uh, something was very true with uh, similar with typhus. So the initial problem of borders being places where people would be not just interrogated about their health past, but but strip searched and cleaned, right? Where you'd have be sprayed with exterminants of different sorts, emerged as a result of a medical concern. It was actually a it was a public health advisory that led to this kind of treatment that we still see today. We still think it's okay now to interrogate people. And if they're taken to secondary to in fact strip search them, or even to, uh, to debug or de-louse clothing. this is very normal protocol now. But it wasn't normal until there was a public health emergency that gave us the tools to justify that expansion. And so these are two little examples. Actually, it's uh, the history of bordering is completely tied up with the history of medical threat. And uh, I didn't know any of that. And I think it's kind of a new, um, uh, one of the new, this is going to come off wrong. One of the interesting things that comes out of uh, horrible world events is if they can prompt you to see things in a different way. And that's sort of the direction I've been trying to take it in my thought, which is to say, how do we learn from other instances of history in a way that we never thought to before? Um, And so I've been sort of drawing from history and and I think it's actually mutually compatible in the same way that Hugo was saying about learning from different disciplines and so forth. Um, So maybe that ties that together.
0: Thank you so much, Matthew. Johanna? Yeah, uh, I can say something just short, just coming back to
2: uh, maybe what you said just at the start. uh, Like the reason for this talk, uh, I think it's been really interesting uh, hearing what you have to say and reconnecting uh, with that bit and um, the, the sort of reason for having this talk that we have these new border crises that, uh, or this new crisis of different types that lead to a lot of policy development in the area of borders. Uh, So uh, how borders are guarded, how borders are surveilled, uh, where their border control is taking place. Uh, So we've been joking a bit uh, before before, uh, as well about, Um, you know it's a very good time for us as border researchers but it's I think it's sometimes we sort of look at it in this very sort of theoretical distance way and I think it's good to get some more you know uh, what's actually going on some meat on it and also uh, to sort of not lose sight of uh, the actual implications of what what this means and uh, that uh, we keep coming up with ways of separating people and Um, keep coming up with ways to to sort of make border crossing more difficult. And sometimes it also spills over into, uh, like uh, Matthew said about, you know, it's usually triggered by some kind of threat, a a health crisis or something, uh, uh, an invasion, something that's really perceived as a threat. But uh, it stays on uh, because the, the tools that we develop to to manage a threat, stay on and gain new functions. And um, one thing to not lose sight of is, I think, what it is that is actually that we are trying to protect, uh, so that we're not, uh, you know, risking, uh, you know, integrity, um, all those kind of things, people's lives, uh, for the sake of uh, this, the, the things that we want to protect, such as people's lives and integrity. <laughs> yeah, so,
0: Hanna Pettersson, Matthew Longo, Hugo von Essen, thank you all so much for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you to all of you watching online and asking questions. And thanks to the team behind the scenes, Hedvig, Jonas and Julia. For those of you joining us from the Stockholm region, there will be another talk in Parken tonight at six with Johanna and Matthew. So make sure to attend that for an even deeper dive into this topic and the opportunity opportunity to mingle with them afterwards. Um, No registration is required and you can find more information on ui.se. And with that, we end this webinar. I hope you enjoyed it and I wish you a nice afternoon.